Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn. I'm here with my daughter Lulu. Hi. At the end of episode 10, uh, I promised I would release some bonus material where, where David Sloan Wilson actually interviewed me instead of me interviewing David Sloan Wilson. And this is that material. I hope you enjoy it. Bye-bye. Hello, this is David Sloan Wilson having a bourbon with Jim Cohn. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, about time. At the uh, Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences uh, meeting. And as we will see from this interview, uh, we're basically <laughs> meeting in the middle uh, from our different perspectives. And, uh, and uh, Jimmy uh, interviewed me uh, yesterday, so yeah. it was a long interview with me as to how I came to this intellectual spot. <laughs> and now I'm going to turn the tables and interview Jim as to how he got here. And it has all to do with the intersection between evolution, psychology, uh, and in your case, neuroscience. Indeed it does, yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's a uh, it's basically uh, all about integration over bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I think the sort of life is all about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, you do a lot of uh, interviewing now. Uh, I do. I, I, t I talk with a lot of people these days. And I play the same game. So, yeah. um, so let's get your life's trajectory. Oh, I want to <laughs> say, uh, you gave the uh, plenary this morning. Yeah. And I told it to you, now I'll tell it to the world. Uh, one of the best talks I've ever attended, ever. Oh, jeez. And, uh, and uh, in part because uh, I talk a lot about Tinbergen's four questions, and that includes um, uh, the mechanism question. So a lot of what I do, sort of at the functional level, you've done uh, beautifully, at the, uh, added a mechanistic dimension to that. And it's just so exciting, and I'll share some of that excitement uh, during this interview. So the way I want to begin, I know from our conversation that uh, classic textbook, actually an edited book by Krebs and Davies on behavioral uh, ecology, was a pivotal event yes. in your uh, thinking. So yes. why don't you tell us as much as you need to to bring us up to that event, and then why that was such a meaningful event, and that how that became reflected in your research. Yeah, well, I've done this early study of hand-holding as a, as a mechanism of sort of what I call the social regulation of emotion. And I had a very specific model in mind when I first did that study. And the model included uh, there was going to be mediation through the prefrontal cortex. And that was because I sort of understood emotion regulation or self-control of impulses as a process that individuals uh, engaged in. They, they regulated themselves. They regulated their own emotions through this thing. And I had seen in clinical cases that people had, you know, sort of supported each other with touch and, and supportive behaviors. And I thought that that was the, the way that social support was happening was that people were activating these self-regulatory circuits. And I, the bottom line is I didn't find it. And then I went on a fishing expedition for a, a couple of years trying to find out what the sort of mechanisms were that linked sort of social supportive touch to less threat reactivity in this paradigm that we have that involves putting people under threat of shock in the MRI scanner. And I couldn't come up with anything. I was, I was completely lacking a mechanism. And somewhere along the line, I don't remember the exact sequence of event, events, but I was giving a talk about this stuff at UVA where I was a new, freshly minted, you know, brand new assistant professor. 
And there was a guy there who's become one of my friends and colleagues. His name was Dennis Prophet. He's an old school sort of Gibsonian perceptual guy, you know, he's into affordances and things. And he said, you know, what if you're barking up the wrong tree? What if there's no mechanism? What if you're thinking about your research all wrong? And the point that he was making is I, I had thought of this being alone in the scanner facing threat of shock as my baseline reading. And then I was putting people, I was asking people to hold hands with a partner and watching how their threat response was diminished when they were holding hands. That was the experimental treatment. And he said, well, you've got it backwards. Maybe humans are sufficiently social as a species that the hand-holding condition is the baseline and your your experimental treatment is being by yourself in the scanner. And, and it sort of blew my mind. And I didn't really know how to think about that. And he said, well, I'm going to give you this book. He gave me a copy of this book called An Introduction to Behavioral Ecology by Krebs and Davies. And by this time, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've studied psychophysiology. I've done a lot of uh, observational psychological research. And, but I hadn't really, really deeply been steeped in, in evolutionary thinking or ecological thinking since, since undergraduate school. And I took a class, actually, my first class on sociobiology was from David Barash, who you know. Okay, I do indeed know him, yeah. You <laughs> and had a good individualistic version. I did, I did. But, but he was a terrific guy. Oh, he's a I good really, guy really, and, of course, a, a gifted writer. And, yeah. Uh, and so uh, hats off to David Barrett, you individualistic <laughs> bastard. <laughs> so, so, that, so, so fast forwarding all these years later, I, I start reading through Krebs and Davies. And let, me, let me just break in here. Uh, that was the book that was uh, in some ways the Bible of behavioral ecology. Um, when did you get this book? What year? That was 2006. Okay, so it was maybe 20 years. Yeah. Uh, they hadn't come and, out with the new edition with the ex- yeah, there West. Were, there were West. multiple editions, uh, but, uh, yeah. but basically the first edition of that book was groundbreaking, and it was uh, adaptationist approach to behavior and other yeah. things. Yeah, So And um, uh, it was a big impact, like a meteor in a way. Yeah, uh, at the time, and then, uh, and so that's what you encountered. I think meteoric is the right way to describe its impact on me. I mean, by the time I'd finished the first chapter, I was already thinking about my own work, and indeed thinking about psychology as a broad, you know, discipline completely differently. It starts out introducing principles that organize behavior, that when you give them even a little bit of thought, make complete sense. I mean, so principles like you know, the management of, of bioenergetic resources, in, that if you're going to engage in a behavior as an organism to accrue resources, you have to invest resources that you have in store. And that is a very risky business. And so you have to have a certain amount of information about the demand of the environment uh, and your own uh, resource cash uh, and that entails certain principles that get built into the genome over time about you know, having a surplus and maintaining a surplus as you as you so you have to balance your investment against uh, and trade-offs, uh, trade-offs, trade-offs trade-offs everywhere and all of a sudden th- I, I i kind of had kind of a personal crisis like an intellectual crisis where i thought holy shit what have i been doing all this time you know, I've been thinking about constructs that have no ultimate, they're, they're not tethered to any ultimate goals or any ultimate constraining principles. And so 
in psychology, sort of anything goes, you know, because they're not, they don't have to be constrained by these imperatives of biological organisms across evolution and ontogeny. And then I started going through chapter after chapter after chapter, example after example after example of this set of principles not existing as a sort of logical arguments, but as empirical data. I mean, I, I recall that there were there were diverse chapters. Some had to do with behavior, as we typically mm-hmm. think of it, mm-hmm. but others had to do with things like digestion. Absolutely. And, uh, and so, one of the messages of uh, adaptationist thinking, basically, is that the way we typically think of as behavior as very flexible in response to the environment, also goes for other things such as life history strategies, physiological strategies, yeah, um, and. Um, and so on. So it expands the concept of phenotypic plasticity to include uh, uh, behavior plus more. Oh, completely. Yeah. And it, this was this was also one of the things that was also uh, electrifying about this this reading experience was that this was nothing at all like my reading of evolutionary psychology that I had done today. Now, I mean, my my dissertation was actually a behavior genetic study of a pattern of prefrontal activity associated with risk for depression. So, you know, I, I, I was pretty well read in behavior genetic, quantitative genetics. I was pretty well read in, in evolutionary psychology. I, I didn't think very highly of it. You know, the criticism, the standard criticism of, of just so stories was one problem that, uh, that I, I recognized as a legitimate point. But also this sort of radical modularity seemed uh, a little too disrespectful of behavioral flexibility and current contextual demands. And the, the thing that, that Krebs and Davies provided was you could say, well, what does the organism need to do? And what are the demands? And how is it going to meet those demands with the, the resources available? And after several interve- iterations of trying to meet those demands, what is it going to settle on as a kind of a Nash equilibrium kind of optimal solution. Let me break in a little bit with a little context, uh, disciplinary context. Uh, Outsiders would see something like evolutionary biology as sort of monolithic or actually more unified than it is. And there are separate movements and schools of thought um, as there are in many other disciplines. You just mentioned three, and so I'm going to provide background on, on three. One is uh, behavior genetics, uh-huh. a whole school of thought. Another is behavioral ecology, different than behavior genetics, uh, because it basically doesn't make any assumptions about genetics per se. It's a, it's a, a brand of adaptationist thinking. It simply yeah. predicts, you know, how would the organism be structured? Was they call it the, the, the phylogenetic gambit? The, the, the phenotypic, the, the phenotypic gambit. gambit. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, and then there is uh, evolutionary psychology, which in, in some ways was a critique of behavioral ecology, in, explicitly yeah. saying that basically that organisms don't evolve directly to behave; they evolve psychological mechanisms that cause them to behave, and that uh, and uh, there can be mismatches and so on and so forth. So these are uh, disparate and in some ways warring traditions. Uh, amongst the evolutionists that you were encountering, you'd have to thread your way through those yeah. uh, as a some, somewhat of an outsider. Yeah, that's true. And th- my, my training was really in psychology, so I didn't have a lot of tools to really know how to, to wind my way through that, that thicket. 
But I did have a sort of intuitive sense as a scientist, as a person who was sort of thinking toward the development of theory and, and methods, that the, the behavioral ecology approach seemed to me to be the most principled approach. Maybe that's an overstatement. I don't want to disparage people. I mean, but it was the one that resonated with me. Uh, the, the sort of traditional evolutionary psychology uh, approach did not. It seemed to be uh, laden with too many of the same problems that had plagued so many of the islands in the archipelago of, of psychology, if you will. And also, when it, when it got to things like the phenotypic gambit, these gambits, you know, we, we're willing to set certain problems aside to try and understand the functional relationship between the organism yeah, and the Yeah, and the gambit, just to be clear to our readers, yeah. is that uh, the gambit is to assume that everything is heritable. Yeah. And that makes life into a kind of a malleable clay. Yeah. And then you make a second assumption that selection has had a long time to work. And so it's that, that with those two gambits, which are simplifications, then you can predict the properties of organisms based on selection pressures. Yes. And it's a good first guess, basically. Yeah, it right. It doesn't have to be it true. Was philosophically, it was philosophically, it, no, it was epistemologically beautiful to me to include that into the thought process, the scientific process, of, to, in order to, to keep forward momentum in, in understanding how organisms operate. Yeah. Yeah. Like basically, it's a great first guess. And yeah. if you haven't been thinking that way about trade-offs and allocations and so on and so forth, then um, it's a great first guess because it's definitely going to get you in the ballpark more than other guesses. So, yeah. uh, so anyhow, continue. Well, so the first thing this did was just sort of blow my mind open in terms of how to understand, how to, how to orient my thinking in terms of psychological questions that, that the field of psychology broadly had been grappling with up to that time. But then with my own research, I started thinking, well, okay, I've been, I, you know, I sort of designed this funny study that my mom can't just can't believe that I got any money for because it was uh, putting people under threat of shock and, and having them hold hands with a supportive partner. And you find that their threat related activations in the brain are, are diminished when they're holding hands with their supportive partner, as opposed to when they're by themselves. And I holding I mentioned hands my, with a stranger. Right, well, your mom says stranger. they gave you money. Well, for they that. gave you money for that. You Why did they give you money me. for that? Yeah. You should have just talked to me about this. I could have cleared it all up. You wouldn't have to spend all that time and money. And, you know, she had a great point. But, but of course, the reason that I did that, I, I knew that that was going to happen. But I wanted to know what the mechanisms were. Because somewhere in my dim memory were Tim Bergen's four questions. You know, and that's David Barish to, 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 to thank for that. Because that was a big part of that, that yeah. whole thing. And, and, you know, it wasn't sufficient to me to say, well, great. You hold hands with somebody and you see attenuations in these threat responses that are sort of stereotypical, uh, you know, in a, a, a long literature of people putting, you know, pain stimuli or threat stimuli or scary pictures. You see the same kinds of activations in the brain. We see them diminished when you're holding hands. But that wasn't the point. The point is to figure out how it's operating. And that's the mechanism. That's question. the mechanism question that's so vitally important if you're going to create a multi-level, uh, you know, model of how organisms work. And Krebs and Davies, with this whole conceptual framework that had been developed over decades, many decades, the behavioral ecology framework, gave me something to start with. the The first question I asked, given that I was studying social support and reading Krebs and Davies. The first question I ask is, what is the human ecology? 
And that turned out to be maddeningly difficult to answer. I went through not just Krebs and Davies. I went, I went into the, the literature. I'm trying to nail down what is, it, what is the ecology that humans are adapted for. And you must know this is an incredibly difficult question to answer. And as I kept pulling and pulling on that thread, the only thing that kept coming up over and over and over again with re- highly reliably was other humans. And, and so this is part of what leads to this, this model that we developed called, we called the social baseline model, which is that you, when you average everything out that humans experience over you know, millennia, the only thing that's constant is other humans. We're, we're so adaptable. We've been so many places. We've, we've, we're in the North Pole. We're in the equator. We're, you know, we're, we eat whale blubber and we eat unrefined grains. We live in humid climates and dry climates. We, we're sort of everywhere. We've been to the moon, practically the bottom of the ocean. The only thing that's constantly there is other people. And I, I don't think I could have had that insight had I not started depending upon evolution and behavioral ecology as a as a framework for forming questions and for asking what comes next well let me take my turn a little bit um and explain why i was so bowled over by (laughs) your work and then and then we can i think maybe take what I would call a post-enlightenment view. Okay. Right, so we're, so far we're telling a story about how you know, we became enlightened. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and now it would be nice, to say, you know, given the fact that we think that we've achieved some kind of an uh, insight, then how do we describe the brain and, and the body uh, from this perspective? And again, I, I didn't anticipate this, uh, but I, it is an opportunity to, to emphasize how much is in formation within the field of evolutionary biology. There's a tendency, a, a strong tendency in me, to explain it as a unified theory, in part like a done deal. Uh, but in fact, there's major conceptions of humanity at play. And so even if, for example, you, you decide that, that uh, the major part of the human social environment is other humans, even that can go two ways, because those other humans can be adversaries, for example. Yes. And then one, one hypothesis uh, called the Machiavellian intelligence hypothesis acknowledges that it's all about social intelligence, but the idea there is that you're, you know, you're, com- you're competing relentlessly to outmaneuver and outthink uh, the members of your own group. So you're an intensely social species, but uh, you're, you're basically in a, some kind of a mental arms race yeah. with the uh, other members of your group. Yeah. But there's a very, very different conception, which is equally social, but much more cooperative and nurturing, which is that, uh, and this, I think, has become the prevailing view, that um, in, in most other primate species, there's a little bit of cooperation and a lot of competition. Yeah. And even the cooperation is to create small alliances that compete with other alliances within the same group. And that what made humans, our ancestors, unique was that there were uh, mechanisms evolved that suppressed the potential for disruptive competition within groups so that between-group selection became the primary evolutionary force. So that, of course, is intensely social, but it's social in a way that your social environment is not some big, you know, chess game with other members of your group. It's one in which you can trust other members 
of your group. And so the default social state is a safe and secure, cooperative, trusting group. And given that, the default mental state and physiological state, the assumption, the default assumption you might say of the brain and the body is, I am surrounded with people that are looking out for my self-interest. And deviations from that state trigger various forms of vigilance in the mind and body. So for me, what was an epiphany, you might say, for myself is to, although I've been saying this all along at the the functional phenotypic level, that, uh, you know, teamwork is the signature adaptation of our species, the idea that this could be reflected in like the default resting state of the mind and the body uh, was uh, uh, a wonderful uh, revelation uh, for me. But maybe you can now take it from here in the post-Enlightenment view and, and uh, just explain to our listeners what it means for the, the resting state to be that you are in a safe and secure group and then deviations from the resting state. Well, so we kept trying to uncover the sort of mechanisms of regulation by proximity to social resources, and we could never find them. Uh, it seemed that the, the, the brain was simply less attentive to potential threats. It was less active in regions that, uh, that have to do with threat vigilance and things like that when social resources were obviously present. And it took a while for me to formulate the idea that that this was because when we're with we're we're in relatively close proximity to social resources, we are in a state that our brain expects to be in and therefore does not have to respond proactively or or or, or reactively to increased sets of demands from the environment. The difficulty I had initially was in understanding that being by yourself might entail more to do. (laughs) And the reason that 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 was hard for me is because when you're by yourself, there's less sensory stimuli to process. But that's because I wasn't thinking about what humans do, what are humans are to how, how they're supposed to operate. I was thinking in terms of, you know, sort of psychological operations instead of humans as an organism. And so, yeah, we have proposed the possibility that the the baseline assumption of the human brain is to be embedded in that trusting uh, social network characterized by shared goals, joint attention, and so on. But, but then with that in mind, I started really get digging into the literature some more. The literature on behavioral economics, game theory, and all of these kinds of things. And you find over and over again this evidence that the default position for humans is to cooperate, to be, uh, you know, sort of aligned with each other, not fight, fight it out or to, you know, and that seemed to... Or even to be very vigilant about cheating and lying and things like that. uh, Right, people are very forgiving. 
the the game theory uh, literature makes this really clear that the optimal game theory solution in, in things like uh, the prisoner's dilemma or uh, not pr- prisoner's dilemma, but various cooperation, cooperation games of all games sorts is to assume that the other person is going to cooperate. And when they don't, to forgive one or two or three times before you finally shut them out. One of the uh, themes of your talk, a new theme in the, for this conversation that I'll introduce now, is that perception of the world is uh, often distorted in ways that are adaptive, basically. Yeah. Uh, we could call them adaptive fictions. And that's been a favorite theme of mine for a long, long time. But once again, your talk added some you know, mechanistic flesh to those uh, functional bones. And uh, in a way that also ties back to this to this social theme, so please repeat for the audience <laughs> this marvelous research. I think it's the research of your friend Denny Prophet, yeah, uh, involving estimating the slope of a hill. <laughs> and just to set the stage, what we're going to encounter here are several things. First of all, adaptive fictions. Basically, yeah. we see the world not as it really is in a way that is makes sense from this behavioral ecology perspective, allocation of resources, yeah, and also in a sense in which the social resources become blended with the personal resources. So all of these are going to be wrapped up in this amazing research about when you're faced in an image of a road leading up a long, <laughs> long hill, and you're asked to estimate the slope of the hill, uh, what, it actually, what you actually see. Well, so Denny, who is also, I mean, he's the guy who gave me the book, the, the Krebs and Davies book to begin with. So he'd already been through this series of epiphanies that I have already been through. And he was, he, he's also from the sort of the, the James Gibson uh, tradition of thinking of perception in terms of affordances, which is another way of, of saying, saying what you were saying already, which is that we perceive biological organisms perceive what they need to perceive in order to survive and procreate. I mean, this is, there's a very pragmatic functional element to perception that surprises a lot of people, surprises me, because you think that you should just perceive everything as it actually is, but that's wasteful. You don't need to perceive everything as it actually is. You need to perceive what you need to, to use in order to do what you need to do as an organism. And one of the, the ways that, that he's illustrated this is by having people estimate the slant of hills. It's really great. He, he actually brings undergraduates out to actual hills, and he has them estimate the slant by degrees. And uh, what he finds is that people very systematically overestimate the slant of hills. And this makes a lot of sense in a behavioral ecology framework because the overestimation creates a surplus of personal resources in the sense that it's discouraging us to walk up hills when we perceive hills to be steeper than they actually are we're, we're our brain is sort of saying yeah you know don't walk up that hill unless there's something really terrific up at the top of that hill that, that you can translate into some great resource because it's all things equal more costly to walk up hills than to not walk up hills so let me break in again and, and actually tie in another example so it, of course it doesn't have to be that way one possibility is is that we can accurately estimate the slope yeah and then separately we estimate uh, the energetic cost. Yeah. And so what we could say is, is that the slope of the hill is what it actually is, <laughs> but I don't want to go up that hill. Right. What actually happens is, is because you don't want to go up the hill, then you actually see the hill as being steeper. Yeah. 
And let me just tie to another wonderful <laughs> example from some of our previous research on with Kevin uh, Niffen on, uh, on the estimation of physical attractiveness. In this case, uh, theory tells us that uh, you should be attracted to a partner uh, according to their fitness value. And the fitness value has a physical component, how physically uh -huh. beautiful they are, and a non-physical component, how nice they are, how trustworthy they are, so on and so forth. Perfectly possible that the way we perceive this is uh, we estimate all of this, and we say, okay, this woman, she gets a four for looks, and she gets an <laughs> eight for non-physical stuff. Uh, all <laughs> things considered, I like her. That's not how it works. Uh, what we do is we, we, we fold the non-physical stuff into the physical stuff, and we actually perceive that person as more physically attractive, more physically right. attractive. And in the case of the slope, right. what we're doing is we're folding the economic aspects, and we're not separating it. It's just, that's a fucking steep hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And 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 he really drives the point home by having people wear these heavy backpacks. So yeah, he the nuances, so the variations. He, yeah, the he, he's like, well, let's see if we can move this around. And and that's, of course, exactly what you need to do if you were really going to understand how, how the phenomenon works. And so he has people put on backpacks that are, you know, I, I think, something like 20% of their body weight. And we, systematically, the hills become steeper in their reports. The personal resources are taxed, and therefore you're perceiving the world differently, such that your behavior is modified. You have you require yet more motivation to get up the hill when the backpack is on. What's lovely about this is that it adds to the Krebs and Davies stuff in ways that Krebs and Davies never could, because humans can report what they're experiencing in ways that other animals cannot. Yeah, that's an asset, especially when you manipulate it in this yes, way. Yes, that's you know, right. More manipulations where the, you got them to do some exercise, run around a lot, now yeah. they're tired. You can, you can do this all kinds of ways. You can have them run around the block three times and they get tired and, and the hill gets steeper. You can have them fast all day before they come and give the report the hill's steeper. Heavier, steeper heavier people. Heavier. Higher BMI is associated with, with a steeper hill. 2008... Somewhere around there, Simone Schnall is a postdoc working with Jerry Clore and Denny Prophet, and she does a study where she has people stand next to their friends, either with their friends or by, by themselves with the backpack on. And she finds that standing next to your friend, the, the hill is systematically less steep. Less steep. And that makes my point, basically, that the personal resources, what we would think of as the individual resources, right. are blended with the social resources. That's right. That's right. They're blended with the social resources so that this gives us our first clue that part of the way that humans are organized to construe their environment is that when they are in close proximity to social resources, the bioenergetic capabilities of those social resources outside the physical boundary of our skin, they also belong to us. And we're hardwired to, hard to factor that in. And because it's a good bet. So, so, so we wouldn't be wired this way if that weren't true, right? Because that would make no sense. And so we make that prediction because that prediction is probably true. Yeah. So now let's, um, to uh, recapitulate your wonderful talk this morning, we can tell the same story for a completely different set of traits. That would be blood glucose. Uh -huh. And to set the stage, uh, 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 glucose is what you described as money. Yeah. It's the money of the body. And what you really need in order to uh, basically to uh, uh, any kind of action, you have to spend uh, glucose. Uh, 
And if you're in a threatening situation, then you need to have cash on hand, basically. Right. And what that means is that blood circulating in your veins. Yeah. Um, if you don't need to spend money, then you can stash the money. And uh, if you need it, it's going to take a little bit of time, basically. Yeah. Against that background, uh, the uh, level of circulating glucose is an indication of uh, how threatened you are. Basically, you're, you're, you need the cash in your pocket in order to uh, spend right. it immediately. And then like the perception of the hill, then the level of, of glucose is sensitive to many, many factors, uh, some individual, some social. Right. So uh, please uh, add to that story now that, <laughs> now that I've set the stage. So bottom line is what, what we found in an initial sort of exploratory study was that fasting levels of blood glucose, which, as you say, we, we sort of construed, and this also derives d- almost directly from Krebs and Davies. You know, they, they get me thinking in terms of economics. We suggest that if your expectation is that you are going to be confronting problems in the world by yourself. You're going to have to keep a higher concentration of glucose in your bloodstream because you're going to have to anticipate that you're going to have to invest more money, more more bioenergetic money in solving demands, in meeting demands of the environment if you're by yourself. And as luck would have it, there's there is a field within psychology called attachment theory particularly adult attachment theory, where, where there are different sort of attachment styles. And one of the attachment styles that has long been documented, and there's lots of good research about this, is called avoidant. And avoidant people who are so-called avoidantly attached, they assume that they're going to be facing life's difficulties by themselves. And there's debate about why that is, but there's not much debate about whether that is the case. There are definitely people like this. Yeah, let me, let me uh, again provide some more background Yeah, because this is a whole story in itself. Uh, the attachment styles are interpreted starting with John Bowlby, mm-hmm. who was, uh, you could say, the fa- one of the fathers of uh, evolutionary uh, psychology. Yeah, I think uh, so. Studied uh, how children interact and, and identified these three styles. And to make a long story short, Uh, These have been interpreted as like adaptations to different childhood environments. And if if you're actually growing up in a safe and secure environment as a child, then um, there's a certain attachment style, which is relaxed. You check back with mom. You feel to explore, that kind of thing. If you're unlucky and you have a, a not a very caregiving environment, then there's two strategies, basically. One is the clinging strategy. Yeah. And the other is the early fledging from the nest yep, yep. Um, strategy. And so these are what it adapts you to the childhood environment. And because we're not total chameleons, then these carry over to the adult environment. So how you are as an adult is in part reflected by your childhood environment. And that leaves us with the adult attachment styles. Right. So the people who are sort of often referred to in this this broad literature one style is this avoidance style that that where where your strategy in approaching life is to de-emphasize these potential social resources you've the theory which i think is pretty strong actually is that uh you've experienced enough i don't know what you call them maybe you could call them cheaters betrayals enough betrayals and cheaters that you're you're just going to assume that you're going to have to do it by yourself and that assumption uh, develops into a preference. 
to being alone because it's stressful to think that someone else might be trying to helpful because you don't to help you because you don't trust them. And so we thought, well, maybe what if these highly avoidant people have higher <laughs> fasting glucose levels? And we, you know, we were doing a, a bunch of other studies. We had a, it's about 60 female undergrads at UVA and we found indeed a positive association. It's just a, a single correlation of about 0.45 or so between attachment avoidance by a, an adult attachment measure, questionnaire measure, and fasting glucose levels. And I thought it was interesting, but that was we're still in the hypothesis generation phase. This is not in any, in any sense conclusive. But I gave a, a talk in Israel a couple of years after that, and I and I presented these data just you know to to sort of suggest this as a as a possibility, and a collaborator there who who became a collaborator, this guy named Sahi Eindor, just so happened to have access to a very large sample, well, by psychological standards, a, a large sample of about 300 people who were radically different from my undergraduate female sample at UVA. They were, these were 45 to 90 years old, and they, they, they were associated with the Israeli military in some way, and they had an attachment measure of avoidance that was different from the one that I had used. It was, it was a, I don't know exactly where that came from, but they also had fasting glucose levels and, and, and a bunch of other measures that we know are associated with glucose, and we found the same association, the, the, a positive association between uh, attachment avoidance and fasting glucose levels that was maintained after statistically adjusting for things that are known to co-vary with fasting glucose levels like anxiety, DHEA cortisol ratios, hypertension measures, and so on. So that was pretty, that was pretty amazing because this <laughs> felt like I was finally dipping my toe for the first time in behavioral ecology research because the, the, the Krebs and Davies book over and over again, they can, they, you, you get examples of real mechanisms that are associated with these theoretical models of resource allocation. And I felt like we were sort of starting, we're sort of starting down that road with people now. Well, why don't we end up with a discussion of uh, what this means uh, in a, a prevention science and clinical psychology sense? Uh, how does this help us understand function and dysfunction in the in the real world? I mean, I, I can already see the connections that, of course, so many people in modern life do not exist in safe and secure environments. No, that's right. They're out of their comfort zone. They're like the people in your MRI machine. They're threatened yeah. all the time. Uh, they don't have uh, trusted associates, and so therefore, uh, they're going to be spending their money, their glucose money, um, and and their resources uh, with various forms of threat man detection and management, which is going to presumably wear and tear on the on the body and mind, and 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 so on and so forth. So this will have adverse health consequences, mental consequences, social consequences. So uh, again, uh, flush that out for me. You know, the big part of the big problem in medical care and psychological intervention is that we think of people as individual units and so on. We don't have to worry about their social environments. The social environments are not part of the picture. They're not on the radar screen. They're not on the radar screen. So right away, let's just nail that down, is that we have the, there's an entire kind of medical paradigm yeah. 
which knows nothing about this. It's, yes. uh, it is clueless with respect to any of what we have been talking about. You, you know, the funny thing was that the, the original design of my hand-holding study that caused this crisis, that caused me to read Krebs and Davies, that caused me to, to think about things in, in much more broadly evolutionary and ecological terms, derived from a single clinical case where I was working with a war veteran who could not engage in exposure therapy because, in, indeed, when he finally told his story, I could understand a little bit better. It was absolutely horrific. And he couldn't tell that story without his wife present. And he couldn't tell the story not only with her, without her present, but without her holding her, his hand. And so that clinical experience sort of urged me to create this study with the fMRI because I wanted to see what was happening. I'm so glad that happened yeah. because all of this stuff has fallen out from that single clinical case. And what I wonder is how many clinical situations are like that where the person who needs that mechanism that's built in, that's hardwired, as you might say, into the way that we operate, it's not being taken advantage of. It's not being utilized. Part of the reason that I study the brain, the neural mechanisms of these kinds of processes now is because I have noticed that when you tie it to the mechanism, physicians do pay a little more attention. And I think there's some good reasons for that. I mean, sure. if, if, you, if, if you think about the history of the association between smoking and cancer, for example, and people knew that there was an association for a long, long time, decades before any serious social measures were taken to try and do something about it. And the reason for that was that we didn't have a mechanism. People could say plausibly that, it's, that there could be some third variable. And until we know the mechanism, we can't really know how to intervene. And so part of what we're trying to do now in my lab is really describe what those, those mechanisms are at that central nervous system level. And I, my hope is that this will start maybe the process of getting these sort of social regulatory mechanisms taken more seriously. Yeah, well, it's a good, it's a good illustration of the fully rounded four-question uh, approach. We actually have touched upon function, mechanism, development, and phylogeny in this talk. So uh, for us, it's like riding a bike <laughs> and uh, can be like that for everyone. Yes. And, uh, but it's going to take a while for uh, everyone, for the field as a whole, for the whole, uh, whole uh, health sciences and so on, uh, to get where we are now. And so uh, anyhow, maybe this uh, interview will help a little bit, nudge people in that direction. <laughs> so with that, uh, this is awesome. And, uh, and uh, last night, uh, the tables were turned. And, yeah, uh, and I indeed. was uh, the one uh, <laughs> in the hot seat. Uh, together, they make an interesting pair. Yeah. And uh, so uh, this was awesome. And so uh, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Okay, that's it. Hope you uh, hope that was enjoyable. Uh, I'll be back again soon when I uh, release episode 11, where I talk with Nicole Prousey. Uh, until then, this is Jim and Lulu Cohn signing off. <laughs>